So uh, let's get into God's word here, Numbers 18. This really, in many ways, coincides with what we looked at last week. In, in Numbers 17, we saw the, uh, you know, God once again uh, talking about the role of, of, of the priesthood. Remember, there was the, the rebellion amongst the, um, you know, some of the Levites with Korah in the previous chapter. And it seems as we moved into chapter 17, then some of the other tribes stepped up and were challenging that priesthood position and thinking that the leader of their tribe should be in that place. And, and God basically said, I want to put in an end to this contention. And remember, he had each um, tribe leader bring forth their staff, and they brought him before the Lord at the tabernacle of witness. And God caused Aaron's staff to bud, which is a miracle. And as we think of staffs, we need to think of a hiking staff and, and, and one used well and a hardwood that, you know, is dead as a doornail, so to speak. And yet God caused that almond blessing or blossom to come forth to really show that, you know, that call was upon the household of Aaron to be the priesthood and so forth. And listen, what God has called you to, there's going to be fruit there. There's going to be evidence. And so that blossom came forth to show I called them and the evidence is of the fruit. And those, those other men had a call on their life. Uh, but it wasn't that position. It was something else. And when they walked in that, there was fruit there as well. And every one of us as followers of Christ have a call on our life. God has given us gifts. God is putting us in, in different places and so forth. And we really want to know what that is and embrace that and be found about his business. Man, we're living in a day where uh, we need to be a people drawing near to him and bearing fruit and being salt and light. And I'll tell you one, one good thing about uh, when it gets darker and we're living in days where it seems to be getting darker, just a little bit of light can really stand out. Just a, a, a little bit of, of a spark, you know, uh, oftentimes can grab people's attention, even more so when, when maybe things aren't as dark. So draw near to him and be about his business. Now we move here into Numbers 18, and now God turns to the Levites and talks to them about their responsibilities because he wanted to, again, get rid of the contention and really show that the Levites and Aaron's household were called to be the high priest. And now he turns to the attention to them right off the bat here to talk about the responsibility of that. And then he talks about the tithe to be able to sustain them in this chapter, as well as the call to the Levites to set the example for them to tithe off the tithe that they received for their livelihood. And then hopefully we'll get into Numbers 19. I'm super excited about that because it's about the red heifer. And if anyone is, you know, a, a, a student of Bible prophecy, even if you're not, uh, especially this past year, you might have heard of the red heifer. And boy, they got the red heifer in Israel. And some people say, the red heifer's here. Now Jesus can come back. And listen, Christ's return is not, uh, you, know, at, uh, you know, at hinging on the red heifer. But we're going to talk about that because a lot of people aren't familiar with that. They're not familiar with Numbers 19 and the, the, the role of the red heifer there in worship and and so forth and how that ties into end times things so we'll try to go through numbers 18 quickly there's one section i'm not even going to read we'll just refer to it and then hopefully we can get right here into numbers 19 so numbers 18 uh, verse 1 then the lord said to aaron you and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary and you and your sons with you shall bear the iniquity associated with your priesthood so again, there was this scrum, so to speak, for uh, the leadership of the priesthood. 
and the squabble over it. Even though God had already established Aaron's household as the high priest and the Levites as the, you know, at the, 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 the tribe that would uh, tend to the tabernacle and so forth. Um, and yet again, in all of the discord that took place before and the rebellion and the contentions, um, uh, God had to establish once again to end that, that the Levites were to be in that place. Now with that, um, yes, it was a high call from God, but it wasn't like they were just, you know, at getting a position to lord over others. In fact, that's not the position at all. It was to serve God and to serve others, and with it came an incredible responsibility. Notice he says, you're going to bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary, and you're going to bear the iniquity associated with your priesthood. And there is an incredible responsibility in being a priest there in the Old Testament. And under the New Covenant, there is an incredible responsibility in being a pastor, in being an elder, in being a Bible teacher, in areas of leadership that he calls individuals to, again, in the New Covenant. And um, you know what? A responsibility of of, uh, the iniquity that would come forth if it's not properly dealt with. If it allows to continue, if uh, leaven is allowed to come in and strange fire and so forth, uh, and why anyone would want a position they're not called to or biblically qualified to is beyond me. Again, James, he says, let not many become teachers. Why? They'll incur a stricter judgment. It doesn't make teachers better than anyone else. Again, God gives us all various gifts. When we walk in them and the function of them, you're going to find a healthy church body. You're going to find more health in Christianum. But we don't want to, again, walk in positions we're not called to, whether it's pastor, elder, deacon, a leadership position, or for that matter, another position, because we're going to be responsible for that. And listen, if we want to bear real fruit and be effective in those things, we, we need to, again, be called to it with the aid and help of the Holy Spirit of God so that fruit would be able to come forth. Now, verse 2, it says, And bring with you your brethren of the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may be joined with you and serve you while you and your sons are with you before the tabernacle of witness. They shall attend to your needs and all the needs of the tabernacle, but they shall not come near the articles of the sanctuary and the altar, lest they die, they and you also. And these shall be joined with you and attend the needs of the tabernacle or meeting for all the work of the tabernacle, but an outsider shall not come near you. Now he's giving divisions amongst the tribe of Levi. He's saying Aaron's household is of the priesthood. They're to tend to the needs and the holy of holies and the holy place. The other Levites, though, are not to come near that. They had a call to, again, move the tabernacle, to move the furniture, to help tend to the outer court and the various sacrifices that people were bringing in and so forth. And he says here, they need to attend your needs, the needs of the tabernacle, but not come near the sanctuary, lest they die, notice here, and you also. So a responsibility upon them to know their role and walk in it because Numbers 17, again, revolved around, or Numbers 16 revolved around Korah, who was part of, Again, the, the, the tribe of Levi wanting to move into the priesthood versus just accepting that call that God put upon him to be one that would break the tabernacle down and move it. And remember, Moses said, it's not a small thing God's called you to. This is a glorious call on your life. 
And on all of our lives, there's a glorious call to serve God with the gifts that he has given us too. Uh, and, and too oftentimes, though, we look at those things with the eyes of men and, and you know, we'll see something that maybe in our eyes seems more glamorous or, you know, would, would be something that would get us more attention from others and along those kind of carnal desires and so forth. And maybe we diminish and we look down on what God has called us to. And that's not how God looks at it. The Lord wants us to take the call he's placed upon us, even if no one ever sees it, and just serve and honor him with it. And he is greatly glorified and praised and pleased with that. In this case, though, again, they needed to stay in their lane, and it was up to the, uh, the house of Aaron to make sure that they stayed in their own lane. Because if they did not stay in their own lane, and let's just say the priest, well, you know, I got a fond affection for this fellow, even though, you know, he's not part of the house of Aaron, and I want to bring him near the sanctuary and to these articles, you know, in the Holy of Holies, not only would it cost that person their life, but it would cause, cause you know, it would take the life of the, the priests that were allowing that to happen. So again, these priests had to have order in their own life. They were also called to have order there in the, the, the priesthood itself across the board. And I think about the New Testament where it talks about leaven, and purging that out. Um, you know what? That starts in a pastor's heart, an elder's heart. They got to make sure the leaven's out of their own life. And then in a local fellowship as well, uh, purging that out, not allowing people just to be in a place of leadership because, you know, of, of maybe their position in the world and so forth. And too many times I think churches fall into that place where uh, their elders' board is ran by individuals that got a high place in the secular world but they don't have those giftings when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the body of Jesus Christ. Some do, but not all do. And so we got to be careful with that. Uh, I, I think it's problematic when an elder board in a church is all CEOs. And uh, maybe some, you know, th- that, that knowledge, if it, you know, if it's a gift of administration that could be used and so forth, that's fine. But we make a mistake when we just look at worldly leaders and say, well, well these should be the leaders in the church as well. It doesn't always work out that way. And um, again, there's accountability to God. Verse five, he says, and you shall attend to the duties of the sanctuary and the duties of the altar, that there may be no more wrath on the children of Israel. So again, God wanted them to put before them that call of bringing the sacrifice before the Lord to remove the wrath from the people. They can't lose sight of it. That was the main thing. And the main thing was really the gospel. Because again, this all pointed to Jesus Christ. Make the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is not a thing. The main thing is Jesus Christ. And so make sure that that's what the focus is. Make sure you remember that's why you're here. That's why you're raised up, to bring those sacrifices, that act of faith of these people. Take my sin and put it on this beast, but ultimately knowing that that's going to be fulfilled in the coming Messiah. All of this pointed to Jesus Christ. This was a gospel message over and over and over again, day after day after day. I'm a sinner. I need someone to die for my sin. And there was one spoken of, one who came named Jesus, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Do you know him tonight? Can you say amen to that? That's good news, isn't it? And if you don't, you need to call on him today and receive the gift of his life laid down for you. Verse 6, behold, I myself have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel. Notice here, they're a gift to you given by the Lord to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. 
Therefore you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar behind the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. And so the Lord wanted them to understand Again, the Levites here, they're a gift to you, to minister to you. So don't look at them. He's telling these other tribes, don't look at them as, you know, there to be envious of or to, you know, want that place, that position. You need to understand they're here to serve you. They're here to be a gift to you. And I think when we can understand that with one another, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, they're a gift to us because... even even since the book of Acts, in the church at times, there's too much infighting, jealousies, and so forth. People jealous about others' gifts and positions. You see it, again, way back in the scriptures, and we've seen it over the last 2,000 years. And what we got to understand is that this brother or sister's gift that God has given to them because he tells them, you have a gift for service, is a gift for you. And I think if we could understand that and get that, it could help us to get over, you know, petty jealousies and envies and things that have come up so oftentimes in local churches and so forth that bring forth divisions and striving and so forth. Uh, the people in here tonight, they're, they're a gift uh, from the Lord to you in that sense. And God's given you gifts to be a gift to them. And... Uh, the more we draw near to him, that will be a fruitful gift versus, you know, a stocking with a bunch of coal in it and so forth. Because when we bury our gifts, it's ineffective, and um, then that's problematic. Uh, notice as well here, it talks about the priesthood uh, for the altar and behind the veil. And I think of the book of Acts where the elders are, are, are you know, uh, the, the apostles are approached about the Greek Jews that aren't the widow's not getting fed and so forth. And they raise up deacons and they said, but we give ourselves to prayer and the word. And here's the priesthood here. They're to be behind the veil. And a pastor, an elder, even all the more, there's a call in their life to be behind the veil, interceding for the people, you know, at entering to that holy place through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and hopefully setting that tone for others as well to follow that pattern of being a people of prayer and a people seeking him and so forth. Um, Now, I'm not going to read verses 8 through 20, but there is a reoccurring theme in them, and you are welcome to go home and read that. Basically, what we find here is that the sacrifices that were brought forth, um, whether it's a grain sacrifice or these sin sacrifices and so forth, um, they, they, they were given to, again, bring praise to God, worship to God, thanksgiving to God. They were there for, uh, again, their sins, transgressions, and so forth, acknowledging I'm a sinner, I need to be forgiven, take my sin, put it on this beast. Again, all those things were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were the shadow. He's the substance. But we also got to recognize these things weren't just wasted. All that resource that came in, those sacrifices weren't just brought and then disregarded those sacrifices were brought and then they were given back to the Levites in part for their livelihood. And God's not a wasteful God. He is a God of order. And boy, it would be very out of order if these sacrifices were just brought, you know what, brought before the Lord, the lamb shed, and then they were just piled up and so forth. God's a God of order. And I found that 
if you're a good steward biblically, you're going to be a pretty good environmentalist as well in the sense of practical. We're not talking about worshiping Mother Earth here and putting the kangaroo rat above people. But if, if you're a good steward of the things of God, you're going to be a good environmentalist as well in the sense of you're responsible for what God's... God hasn't called us to be deliberately wasteful. You know, if we're deliberately just... You know what? Uh, I'll, I'll give you a practical example. In our own fellowship, we, we recycle cans and bottles, you know, and, and we take those and, and cash them in and put that money back into our open arms ministry and in, into the soup kitchen. And so even the idea of, you know what? Every time I throw that away, that's a nickel. I, I, I don't know about you. I don't like throwing away nickels. And when it's like, I'm going to put that aside. I want to be a good steward with this. And then what are you doing? You're doing something that, you know, they tell us is good for our environment as well. And, and, and you'll see that hand in hand. Um, as a fellowship over the years, we've done a lot of things that would be considered green friendly that we were just doing out of being good stewards. That modular building that sits in the back there, we've had that thing out there now for a good dozen plus years. That was a $4,000 building. That's how much that building cost. Now, to set it up was about $20,000, but it was a used building used by a school district up north, and they could only use it for four years, and it's the best modular that could be made. And we, we got an auction, and guess what? The Lord blesses. We were the only people to bid, and we got it for $4,000. And we brought it out here, and that's about all that we could afford at the time. And set it up, and people say, oh, boy, they're green-friendly. Look at that. They brought in a used building, but we did it out of good stewardship. And, you know, we've, we've strengthened it over the years, and that thing's, that thing's as solid as the day we brought it in there. And so God's not a wasteful God. He's a God of order and so forth. And you see it here again in those sacrifices that were brought in. They would be used to uh, sustain the Levites and their families and so forth because these guys aren't, were, were out working regular jobs. They were there to minister to the people. They were a gift to the people. And the Bible speaks about if those who minister to you spiritually, you're to minister to them monetarily you're to take care of their physical needs we see the new testament principle of that um, and and it's referred even back to the old testament practice of these things in fact in verse 21 he says behold i've given the children of levi all the tithes in israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting hereafter the children of israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting lest they bear sin and die but the Levite shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and these shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that from among the children of Israel they shall have no inheritance. For the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore I have said to them, among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. So again, they brought a tithe three times a year on top of the sacrifices that were brought for, again, a peace offering, a, 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 a sin offering, a burnt offering, and so forth, that was given to the Levites for their families. And the tithe that was brought forth was given to them as well. They didn't go out and work jobs. What they were doing, they were a gift to a people and it was ongoing intercession, ministering to their spiritual needs. Again, God permitted that, did not permit them to come near to the sanctuary. So he raised up these individuals to minister spiritually for them. Uh, notice as well about them though he says they will have no inheritance and all the other tribes were given land and they were given that land to stay there so that nation could get strong and the messiah could come forth the levites weren't given that they had 50 cities they they 
you know what, had houses, but they did not have uh, allotted land, and they were even dispersed amongst the, the tribes beyond those that worked there where the tabernacle was to teach the people. All of these communities had synagogues where there would be Levites that would teach about the principles of God and so forth. But he says, they don't have any inheritance. And it's interesting in Revelation, it says in Christ, we're kings and priests. And we don't have an earthly inheritance. The Bible calls us sojourners. Bible says that, that, that we're passing through. Paul says those that buy should not live as if they possess. This building is not our inheritance. Your home is not your inheritance. The clothes on your back, it's not your inheritance. These are gifts from God to be used here for his glory, but we got to look at them as tents. God has a greater inheritance for you. Jesus is making a mansion in glory for you. We have, we have an inheritance that's not going to be tainted by sin in a fallen world. Listen, 20 years into glory, you're not going to have to change the roof on your mansion. It's not going to have the effects of sin and so forth. And we need to thank God for what we have here. It's a blessing, is it not? I mean, we're blessed tonight to gather in this room and not have a leaking roof and, and to have, you know, uh, clothes on our back and food to eat and so forth. And we want to thank God for that. Uh, we want to give him glory, absolutely. We don't take it lightly, but this isn't our inheritance. Uh, as Job said, we, we come in uh, into the world with nothing and we leave with nothing here physically. But hopefully, as we come into the world with nothing, we leave with something. We have an inheritance and glory, first and foremost, of our soul through putting faith in Jesus Christ. And then hopefully as well, we haven't buried our gifts here. Hopefully we haven't wasted our life just envying, envying others' gifts and walking in jealousies and finding reasons to bury what God has called us to. Hopefully it's a thing we're about his business and so forth. And on top of our salvation, there's, there's an inheritance. Listen, Paul even said there's a crown waiting for those that love is appearing. So just in loving the appearing of the Lord, the idea of Jesus Christ coming back, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus, you get a reward just for that. You get a crown just for that. Why? Because, again, it's not God calling us to be unthankful for the things we have here or not to have joy here or to be this doomsday prophet that everyone wants to get away from. But to understand this is a fallen world, I am just a sojourner. And, and I thank you, Lord, that you're coming back. I thank you that this isn't my eternal state. I'm, I'm thankful for everything I have here, and I should be the most joyful person around. But when you come back, it, it's going to be a, a, a sin-free eternity, and it's going to be glorious, and it's going to be good. You, you, get a, you get a crown just for that. If you can truly pray, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. And I think in praying that, it's okay to say as well. And thank you, Lord, as well, for being long-suffering. Thank you that, that your long-suffering in re your return not wanting any to perish. And, and we can walk in both of those things and it's glorious to God. Now, 25 through uh, 32, we'll just read through it. It talks about then the Levites tithing from the tithe they would receive. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak thus to the Levites and say to them, when you take from the children of Israel the tithes which I have given you from among them as your inheritance, then you shall offer up a heave offering of it to the Lord, a tenth of the tithe. And, you, and your heave offering shall be reckoned to you as though it were uh, the grain of the threshing floor and as the fullness of the winepress. Thus you shall offer a heave offering to the Lord from all your tithes which you receive from the children of Israel. And you shall give the Lord's heave offering 
from it to Aaron the priest. Of all your gifts, you shall offer every heave offering to the Lord from, notice here, all the best of them, the consecrated part of them. So he says, you give your tenth and give the best. Don't, don't give you know, the seconds. Give the best to the Lord. Therefore, you shall say to them, when you have lifted up the best of it, then the rest shall be accounted to the Levites as the produce of the threshing floor and as the produce of the winepress. You may eat of it in any place, you and your households, for it is your reward for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall bear no sin because of it when you have lifted up the best of it, but you shall not profane the holy gifts of the children of Israel lest you die. And for them, listen, you got to tithe or you're going to die because you're living off the tithe of these others. And God's saying here, you're here to set this spiritual example. And if you think you're going to walk in that hypocrisy and get away with it, beginning of this, he says, you're going to bear the iniquity of the tabernacle. And he's saying, that's a sinful thing. It's a sinful thing if you're teaching these people to tithe, but you're not tithing yourself. You're not giving of the best yourself. If you're not bringing that before the Lord, then you're going to profane or you're going to defile the, the, the gifts of God, and that's going to be problematic. And, you know, to this day, if any pastor who does not tithe has no business even teaching on tithing themselves. And I run into pastors and individuals in ministry, and they say, well, you know what? You know, we're, we're called to this, so we, we need all of that for ourselves. But boy, on Sunday morning, we're just going to talk about tithing until the, the cows, we'll get one of those big thermometers up here, you know, and so forth. But I, 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 know, I know a lot of pastors, they don't tithe anything. They just don't. And it's like, how can you get up and teach on that when you're not even doing that yourself? And um, you know what? God's called us to do what? Practice what we preach, right? Especially when they're like, you know, give to the Lord and the windows of heaven will open up. But, but for me, they're going to open up even though I'm not giving to the Lord because I'm special over here. No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. God wants us to, again, walk what, you know, to, to again, practice what, what we're preaching when it comes to the truth of God's word, to put that to practice in our lives. And, and when we don't do that, there is a hypocrisy in it. There is an iniquity in that. God's not pleased with that and so forth. Now, we come here to Numbers 19, and again, there's a lot of <clears throat> talk and attention given to the red heifer. In fact, show of hands here, who has heard a news article or some, hear someone talking about the red heifer in the last year? Just, just, just hands. That's a lot of red heifer talk. Over half the people here. Some, again, has even... Some even go as far as saying, Jesus can't come back until there's a red heifer. I, I've heard that for years and years. That's silly talk. But I understand where they're coming from in that. And Numbers 19 talks about the red heifer. I, I, just a quick overview. And, and we've seen this already as we've gone through much of the law. If they touched a dead body, they were defiled. They needed to be made clean. This was mainly a practical reason because... God knew microbiology, and he knew dead people have bacterias and oftentimes diseases, and you don't want to bring that into the camp lest a plague break out. It was also, again, to, uh, another picture that they needed Jesus, that, that we're dead in our sins, and we need to be washed. We need a Savior. So they were told not to touch the dead, and sometimes they had to touch the dead, and you know, sometimes someone's got to touch the dead guy right and clean him up. Someone's got to get him out of there. Um, if everyone just got a stick and so forth, it'd still be hard to pick them up. You got to touch them and move them, and you got to deal with that. 
And, and God understood that. But again, they had to made, be made clean to come back into the camp. And the purification process revolved around the ashes of a red heifer. And basically what we'll see here, and we'll go through that part pretty quickly, they would take this red heifer, they would, they would uh, uh, you know, sacrifice it, put the blood there in the tabernacle, and then they would take it outside of the camp, and they would burn it. And then the ashes would be mixed into cedar wood, uh, hyssop, and running water, and basically that would be used to bring a ceremonial cleansing to the individual that touched that dead body. It would be on day three and then on day seven. And then on day seven, they could come back into the camp. One thing a lot of people don't know, though, are, is that red heifers are incredibly rare. And I, I saw a red heifer today. You know, these red heifers had to be completely red. In fact, the standard basically that was put forth, and this is more by tradition, is that that red heifer could not have two non-red hairs touching each other. and They could only have three at the most on their body. And, and a heifer is a big animal. So listen, this thing had to be purely red. In fact, in Israel's history, how many, think red, how many red heifers do you think there have been in the history of Israel? Nine. Close, though. Nine. Nine in the history. So that ash would go a long way. And, and they would only take a small amount. But only nine that we know of in, in, in the history of Israel, and since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, um, almost 2,000 years ago, there, there haven't been any. Now, they also haven't had a temple, and obviously we know that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all those things, so ultimately there's not even a need for a red heifer. Though in the millennial reign of Christ, there will be a millennial temple, and many of these things we looked at will be practiced, and so there will probably be a red heifer, a red heifer around them, but it will all be pointing to Jesus or, or looking back to Jesus and what he's done. And the ultimate to look forward, they'll be bringing these things and it's all, they're gonna say, boy, aren't you glad we're, we're doing this, but this t- reminds us that Jesus has fulfilled this for us. So they're incredibly rare. We also know that in the tribulation, the Bible speaks of a temple. There is no temple today in Israel. There is what's called the Temple Institute in Israel that has been working to get all the things in order to be able to institute temple worship again. There's a lot of efforts being made to, to, to erect a temple again on the Temple Mount. And some think it's where the Dome of the Rock is. Others believe it's where the Dome of the Spirit is. There's all these different thoughts. One thing that we do know for sure is that eventually there will be a temple built on the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. Will that happen at the beginning of the tribulation? Will that happen before that? We don't know, but absolutely we know there's going to be this, this fourth uh, temple that is built. Or is it the third? Where are we at here in my mind? There, it, uh, the third that will be built there. Now, um, we also know, and Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 24, that midway through the tribulation, the Antichrist will go into that temple who Israel's going to think is the Messiah and he's going to perform what's called the abomination of desolation. In Thessalonians, it says he's going to go there and basically declare himself to be God. He's going to bring a sacrifice that's going to bring uh, desolation upon Israel. Because they're going to recognize this is not our Messiah. They're going to step back. And this is where two-thirds of the Jews are going to be killed during the tribulation. A third will be spared and saved and will come to faith in Christ 
Uh, we, we read in Romans, all Israel will be saved. Most likely, they will go to the rock city of Petra. And it's interesting that it talks about the nations of the world entering into that covenant with Antichrist, except for Jordan, where Petra is today. Now, listen, bringing this back to the red heifer, there's many that believe that without the red heifer, it won't matter if the temple is built or not, because they believe Israel will not bring sacrifices to God unless everything is in perfect order. And again, the Temple Institute has been working on getting everything in order. And, and uh, I've had the blessing to go there a few times. Um, they do a tour, and I ask a lot of questions uh, about, uh, well, what's your sacrifice today? They don't like that because, you know, there's someone named Jesus. And, uh, you know, like, you, you, you guys are, this has already been taken care of here and so forth. Uh, they, they don't appreciate those questions, but they're good questions they need to think about and so forth. But, but they did, listen, they know who the Levites are. They, they, they know the DNA of the Levites. So the, the Levitical priesthood is intact. All those things we looked at about, you know, the garments that the priests wear and all that, they got all that lined up. All that stuff's been remade. All, the, all of the, the, the furniture and so forth. Um, they say they even know where the Ark of the Covenant is. And there's different people that say, oh, that's here or there. They say they know where it's at. Uh, so... Um, whether they do or not, I don't know that. Um, but again, a lot of people believe they just need that red heifer. It's been 2,000 years if they just get that red heifer. That's why there's so much red heifer talk. Well, back in September, and, and I, I don't have time, I think, to read the whole article. But in, this is an article, September 5th, 2018. The headline re, uh, reads, Temple Institute announces birth of red heifer. And so... Again, Israel's been brought together, back together. There's been so many prophecies fulfilled. They've been trying and trying. A few years back, we got the red heifer, then it sprung some white hairs. We're like, ah, you know. But recently, they've announced a, a red heifer that's red. And if, if, if it really is, then I guess it's the 10th one. But I'll just read a little bit of this. It says, last Tuesday, the Temple Institute's red heifer program was blessed with results. What do you refer? I'm part of the red heifer program over here, you know. <laughs> An entirely red female calf was born, paving the way for reestablishing the temple service and making the final stage of redemption. Now, again, that, that, that's already happened in Jesus Christ, but there's blinders there that are going to come off. Almost three years ago, the Temple Institute uh, inaugurated its red, its its rise, uh, raise a red heifer in Israel program. Due to laws restricting the importation of live cattle into Israel, the Temple Institute imported frozen embryos of red Angus, implementing them in Israel's, or implanting them in Israel's domestic cows. The pregnant cows were raised on cattle ranches in different locations throughout the country. The cows are giving birth this summer with several calves already having been born. One week after its birth, a newborn red heifer was certified by a board of rabbis is fulfilling all the biblical requirements. So there's a certified red heifer over there, you know. They probably put a little chain on him, you know, little certified, you know. <laughs> the rabbis emphasize that the red heifer could at any time acquire a blemish, rendering it unsuitable. They will be inspecting the red or the calf periodically to verify its condition. So can you imagine having that job? You know, I got to inspect this red heifer. I'm looking, you know, because a, a white hair may spring up. Uh, the red heifer was the main component 
a component of the biblically mandated process of ritual purification. We just talked about all that. Several heifers have been found in recent years that seem to qualify, but ultimately uh, they were unsuited for the ritual. Earlier this month, two calves born in Israel to the Institute's Red Heifer Program were deemed to be unsuitable for the performance uh, of, of the ceremony. One calf was a bull, while the second, a heifer, had a small patch of white hair, which disqualified her. And then it, it just goes on here talking about, there's all kinds of articles and so forth. It gets into, again, there only being nine. Uh, the process, what we'll look at here real quickly. So listen, that, that's, that's all the red heifer talking. Now you know when it comes up, what's that have to do with? So let's, let's read through this here real quickly, this chapter, and then we'll be done. It says, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, this is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they may bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect on which a yoke has never come upon. So a red heifer is a female. It is a female that's never given birth. This would be a female, again, that would never work, no, uh, no saddle, no work, nothing. In fact, in, you, you start getting into the pharisaical laws. It was like if you even leaned on the thing, it was considered work and so forth. We, we don't see that scripturally but that's, that's how they viewed it. It's interesting, red, the red here, it's a brownish red. It's actually the word Adam. And we know Adam was formed out of the earth. And we think about the first Adam, he sinned, but praise God, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, did not sin at all. And again, this red heifer would bring purification. There's a picture of Christ here, the second Adam, who was born without sin, lived a sinless life, died for us. Praise God, through his death and resurrection, we are purified in out of our sins. That's good news. Again, without blemish, without defect, that's our Lord Jesus Christ. Three through 10, he says, you shall give it to Eleazar, uh, Eleazar, the priest, that he may take it outside the camp and it shall be slaughtered before him. And remember there in Hebrews 13, it talks about Christ being crucified outside the camp. You can read that Hebrews 13, 11 through 13. That's a picture of Jesus again. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of the blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. And again, another picture of Christ who shed his blood for us, that we can enter into the tabernacle, the holy of holies. Then the heifer shall be burned in its sight, its hide, its flesh, its blood, and, it shall, uh, and its offal shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes, he shall bathe in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. The priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water, bathe in water, and he shall be unclean until evening. Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place. And these shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water purification. It is a purifying from sin." The one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and the, be unclean until evening. It shall be a statute forever to the children of Israel and to the stranger who dwells among them. And again, Christ fulfilled these things. This was a shadow. Christ is the substance in all of this. When it talks about a statute forever, the fulfillment is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11 through uh, 13. He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. Notice here, he, the, the, the dead body of anyone, there's no exceptions. Listen, death is death, sin is sin, it brings pollution. So the dead body, you know, even if it was the dead body of Moses, Aaron, doesn't matter. Death is death, sin is sin. They bring uncleanliness. 
It says, verse 12, he shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, then he will be clean. But if he does not purify on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the temple of the Lord. The person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanliness is still on him. So again, it doesn't matter who you touched. If they were dead, you were unclean. Notice here, again, he has to purify himself. There's a personal responsibility, acknowledgement. I'm in sin. I'm unclean. I need to be made right. And then notice as well, it's interesting, on the third day and on the seventh day. And you know what? We could take that and really run deep with it, but we know Christ did what on day three? He rose from the grave. And we know day seven, it is a day of completion. And you know what? A lot of people can do a lot with that. I'm not going to do that tonight. But here's the thing. If they didn't get clean, they were cut off. And tonight, we know there's only one way to be clean. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we die and we're not clean, we're cut off. And that's why it's so important that we proclaim the fulfillment of this to Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, you can even take that red heifer talk and use it as a platform to talk about Jesus. Talk about this is fulfilled prophecy. People's mind get blown with this stuff. I know a lot of people have come to Christ just as they begin to understand prophecy and all this has been fulfilled there in Israel and all this happened and they step back and they wait, wait, this was talked about in the Bible. So it's good we know these things. Verse 14, this is the law when a man defiles or dies in his tent, all who come in the tent and all are in the tent shall be unclean seven days and every open vessel which is not covered, uh, uh, has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever is in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword or has died, or the bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. So again, uh, even a vessel with no cover is unclean. You even touch a bone, it's unclean. You touch a grave, it's unclean. And, and so again, if it's not covered, it's unclean. And again, another picture of Christ. We're covered by his blood, so we are clean. Positionally, we're right before him, and practically, we want to walk in that cleanliness. 17 through 19, uh, and for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer, burnt for purification. And so again, only nine, this ash would last a long time. Heifer's a big animal. There's a lot of ash there. And they would no doubt ration this out. Um, you know, practically you look at this and, and that ash isn't going to make you pure. I, I don't know if there was a miraculous part of this. I know hyssop is, is a cleansing agent. This was more an act of faith, though, and a practical thing. You were gone seven days, it allows that, you know, that bacteria can't live on. Um, even that isolation would practically take care of that. Maybe there was a miraculous part of this. We see that oftentimes in the law with the, the laws of leprosy and so forth. I don't know that. Uh, but again, this was mainly to show them someone needs to die for you to make you clean. It pointed them to Jesus Christ. So again, take some of the ashes of the red heifer burnt for purification from sin notice here running water shall be put on them in a vessel again a, a, another scientific truth in scripture not still water what happens in still water bacteria grows there have been millions of people who've died in the history of our world because everyone was running around washing their hands in still water and like why is this plague here you need to use running water you got to get that that funk out of there you got to get that disease out of there but running water, to get, a wa get, to, to get the, again, the, it, it, any unclean thing off of them. Uh, a clean person shall take hyssop 
and hyssop. Again, today is called oil, oil of oregano. Um, someone in my house was sick last week, and everyone else, you know what we did? We rubbed hyssop on our feet, and no one else got sick. Now, we prayed a lot, too, but it's a purifying agent, and it has incredible uh, healing properties, and it's biblical. So I'd encourage you to go look into hyssop, into oil of oregano. It is phenomenal. It's biblical. Uh, a clean person shall take hyssop uh, and dip in it uh, with the water, sprinkle it on the tent and on the vessel, on the persons who were there, and on one who touched the bone, the slain, the dead, or the grave. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day, on the seventh day, on the seventh day. Uh, he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, and bathe in water. At the evening he shall be clean. And then finally here, uh, verse 20, but the man who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from among the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. It shall be a perpetual statute for them. He who sprinkles the water of purification shall wash his clothes. And he who touches the water of purification shall be unclean until evening. Whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. And notice, again, if he is not cleansed, he's cut off from the sanctuary. He says, you're not going to defile the, the, the camp. You're not going to defile the, sanctuary, the, the, the sanctu uh, sanctuary of the Lord. And tonight, we got to know, listen, unless people are made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, that's not entering into glory. Sin is not entering into heaven. And Jesus in Matthew 22 talks about a, a wedding feast and, and having to have, again, that proper clothing, that clothing that's washed, the clothing of righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And there's someone in there without that garment on, and guess what? They're tossed. They're bounced. Because God's not going to have defilement and glory. That's why heaven, one of the reasons heaven's going to be so good, it's not going to be tainted by the sin of men. In fact, we won't even have a sin nature anymore. That's going to be glorious. It's going to be good. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for even these fulfilled prophecies, so to speak, God. And, uh, Lord, all this happening, God, in our midst. I pray, God, that we would have hearts that say, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. And at the same time, we would have hearts to say, oh, Lord, thank you for this day that you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I want to pray, God, that again, we would be found proclaiming the good news, the fulfillment of these things. And tonight, Lord, if there's any who have not called on your name, that tonight they would. They'd cry out, be merciful to me, Lord, a sinner. And God, they would receive that purification that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and you alone. Lord, bless the rest of our evening. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and we said together, amen. God bless you.